The National Archives podcast series, Constance Emily Kent, Lost in Literary Legacy, presented by Sarah Hutton. On the night of June 29th, 1860, a middle-class Wiltshire family prepared for bed. Samuel and Mary Kent and their three young children, Mary Amelia, aged five, Francis Savile, aged nearly four, and Evelyn, aged one. The two younger children, Francis and Evelyn, slept in a bedroom with their nursemaid, Elizabeth Gough, in a room which adjoined that of their parents. Elizabeth was particularly tired that night as she had spent the day cleaning out the nursery. The two little children had not therefore had the opportunity for an afternoon nap and were expected to sleep soundly. Mary Amelia, Francis and Evelyn were not the only offspring of Samuel Kent in the house though. Also living there were the four surviving children of his previous marriage to another woman named Mary. The children of the first Mrs. Mary Kent were Mary Ann and Elizabeth, both in their late twenties, Constance, aged sixteen, and William, aged fifteen. The only other people in the house that summer night were the housemaid, Sarah Cox, and the cook, Sarah Kerslake. At five o'clock the following morning, the nursemaid, Elizabeth Gough, woke to discover that Francis was no longer in his bed. Elizabeth was not particularly surprised, as his mother had mentioned to her that if she heard him or Evelyn cry out in the night, she may well come and take them into her own room. The neatly turned back bedclothes on the little boy's cot confirmed this. At six o'clock, Elizabeth rose and dressed and then knocked at the Kent's bedroom door to ask if she could take the child back into her own charge so she could wash and dress him. Mary Kent opened the door, but upon being asked for Francis's return was surprised, saying that she had not taken the child into her room during the night. Confused, Elizabeth began searching the house. She woke the two eldest girls, Mary Ann and Elizabeth, but neither had seen Francis. It soon became apparent that no one in the house had seen the little boy since the previous evening, and Mr Kent rode off to summon the police. He rode a mile to Southwick and raised the alarm, but rather than returning home he then pressed on for a further five miles to Trowbridge to speak in person to Superintendent John Foley. In his absence, the household staff and neighbours began a search throughout the house and the gardens, and within hours, William Nutt, a local shoemaker, and Thomas Benger, a farmer, had discovered the boy. Francis Savile's little body had been stuffed down an outside privy. He had a wound across his throat so wide that it was reported his little head almost fell off. This moment in time seems to mark a critical juncture. One path opens up along which real events begin to play out, Autopsies are conducted, a London detective is called in and investigations begin. But another much wider path is forged, a path fuelled by the imagination. It has its roots in a society ripe for the macabre and the grisly, the mysterious and the intriguing, where the idea of a middle-class home thrown into uproar by the evil behind closed doors emerges fully formed out of the pages of the sensation novels of the 1860s, encompassing themes of murder, possible adultery and insanity. It was what E. H. Carr described in What is History a hundred years later as a path where history may relapse into literature, that is to say, a telling of stories without purpose or significance. This paper will consider the lines which exist, are crossed, and ultimately become tangled in the relationship between an historical archive and its own literary legacy. It will question to what extent archival documents can be read as historical fact and whether once fiction surrounds that, can it ever be possible to reclaim an authoritative truth? The span of texts which emerge from this case are almost too numerous to count and run from John Stapleton's The Great Crime of 1860, published in 1861, through to the latest Nolene Kyle's A Greater Guilt, published in 2009. 
Some are novels, which contain hints and allusions to the case, such as Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, Charles Dickens' The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and Margaret Oliphant's Salem Chapel. The majority position themselves as historical accounts, often introducing the idea of a different theory or piece of evidence. The most famous has to be The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, but by the time Kate Summerscale had written this, Nolene Kyle suggests that there were already at least 15 substantive works, innumerable newspaper articles, several novels and thousands of websites. Yet in many ways, Summerscale's work perfectly highlights the problematic nature of all the others. In the blurb in the inside cover, we are told that we are to read of a true story that inspired generations of writers. The author untangles the facts behind this notorious case, bringing it to vivid, extraordinary life. There is no doubt that indeed she does put enormous efforts into bringing this case to life, but as quickly as she untangles the facts with one hand, she goes on to tangle them with the other. Summerscale's facts come from three main sources, and it is the movement between these which creates this effect. The first two are the documents held at the National Archives, of which there are four which relate directly to the Kent case, and one indirectly, and contemporary newspapers. These are featured quite plainly in her bibliography, but through the text itself we never see a footnote to a particular file giving us its exact provenance. In fact, what we find is a seamless flow of reported conversations from events which were never witnessed, moments which could have taken place and those which could not, interspersed with direct quotation from police statements and Home Office correspondence. Nowhere is this more evident than with the collection of facts. On the 13th of July, two weeks after Francis was murdered, a letter was sent from Mr Stancombe, one of the magistrates at Trowbridge, requesting the services of a detective officer in the case of the late murder of Mr Kent's child at Road. He and his fellow magistrates are of the unanimous opinion that this will be desirable and that no time should be lost in securing his services. With immediacy, Inspector Witcher is dispatched. The Metropolitan Mail, with his rational detecting prowess, collides with a world of feminine domesticity where secrets abound and no less than three blood-stained women's undergarments create chaos and confusion. When Witcher requests that the outside privy where the child was found is investigated further, he discovers a piece of flannel on top of the soil, some feet below the body, with marks of blood upon it which may have been caused by the blood dropping from the body above. It is an old piece of flannel, similar to that worn by females over the chest, and strict inquiries have been made to find to whom it belongs. Within a week, he has written a second report, this time clarifying that the flannel is what is called a chest preserver, worn by females on their bosoms. It is about a foot wide by 15 inches long, and apparently nearly worn out, and he backtracks from his belief that the flannel is of relevance. As regards the piece of flannel alluded to in my former report, I beg to state in explanation that there is a possibility of it not being connected with the murder, as it was not found in the upper part of the closet with the body and the blanket, and I can understand it not being identified by the person to whom it belonged from fear of being suspected of the murder. This would seem to indicate that the women of the house have been questioned as to the flannel and no one has come forward. Indeed, Witcher suggests that in actual fact it is quite possible that this flannel has nothing to do with the murder at all. Yet, in the suspicions of Mr Witcher, we are given a word-by-word -word account of the conversation between Mrs Dallimore, whom Summerscale describes as a searcher, and Elizabeth Gough, when the former makes the female servants undress and try on the flannel. If Mrs Dallimore did indeed conduct such a Cinderella-style investigation, which notably is not referred to in the National Archives documents, it is very unclear as to how this conversation, which presumably took place in the privacy of Gough's bedroom, was recalled and reported back in such detail. 
To what extent do fact and fiction become blurred in the quest to create yet further dramatic effect, and to what extent does it matter? The third type of fact used by Summerscale is perhaps most significant on what is called the Sydney document provides particular food for thought. In 1936, John Rode contributed an essay to the Kent case to the anatomy of murder. In the foreword we read, seven members of the detection club here offer commentaries upon an equal number of murders. In each case, the writer has not been content simply to retell the story of the crime, but has endeavoured to throw light upon it by revelation of new facts. The need to reveal new facts, even 70 years later, has not died, and what Rode produces is quite astounding. Rode quotes extensively from a document which he states himself is quite remarkable. It is a document which arrived in the post addressed to the author, Rode himself, shortly after his earlier publication of The Case of Constance Kent, and is now deposited in the library of the Detection Club London. He reports that though unsigned, it contains ample internal evidence of having been written, if not by Constance Kent herself, at least by some person having a very intimate knowledge of her childhood and history. He states that although anonymous, the wording of this document is sufficiently convincing to allow its quotation. This remarkable document does indeed give Rode plenty to comment on. Indeed, without it, it is hard to see how he could have gone about revealing new facts. The sections quoted are written about Constance in the third person, reveal a myriad of details about her childhood, and neatly contour with snapshots of her life dwelt on by Witcher and the press, developing them fully to provide substance to the previously thin explanation of the crime being perpetrated by Constance in revenge for the cruel treatment from the woman who was to become her stepmother, and anger at the father's sidelining of her own mother. We read of Constance witnessing scenes which she is initially too young to comprehend, including one which the as-not-yet-second Mrs. Kent, frightened in a storm, is pulled onto Mr. Kent's lap, kissed and exclaimed, Not before the child. Summerscale is quick to draw allusions between this scene and Henry James' What Maisie Knew, but I would argue it is just the edge of the surprising number of parallels between the events of the letter and contemporary fiction. We read of Constance being put down in a dark wine cellar after being particularly provocative and passionate, then later in a beer cellar, a room with a window too high to look out of, and finally in an empty garret. These dark scenes of childhood cruelty resound with overtones from such novels as Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. Indeed, on one occasion, when Constance escapes from one of her many prisons, she is found climbing the trees in the shrubbery and impaling slugs and snails on sticks in trees. Living outside like the little Cathy, transformed into a half-feral creature, capable of neither feminine decorum nor gentleness. This Sydney document, which seems in itself to emulate a Gothic Victorian novel of darkness and intrigue, makes its way into the conclusion of Summerscale's work as an unquestioned illumination of the character and motivations of Constance, and also as a way to put forward her syphilis theory, which neatly accounts for the death of many of the Kent children, the madness of the first Mrs Kent, and the early death of the second. Yet the Sydney document's remarkable nature was not just demonstrated through its contents, but also by its existence itself. The original letter which Rhodes mysteriously received in the post over 80 years prior to Summerscale's account was destroyed by enemy action in the Second World War. All that remains now is the copy, typed out by the very man who could only feature in the illustrious detection club by revealing new facts. This legacy of material, of which Summerscale's work is merely just one, positions itself quite firmly as a series of historical accounts. Yet at each twist and turn these facts become skewed, 
and as others put down their own facts upon these, we are left with shifting instability, where fiction is laid upon fiction on a foundation made out of sand. The facts themselves become so deeply buried that it's almost impossible to dig them back out. Yet if we turn to the original archive itself to get closer to the truth, things become further problematised. When Inspector Witcher arrives at Roadhill House, the case does indeed begin to move forward, but perhaps not exactly in the desirable fashion Mr Stancombe the magistrate had envisaged. In the correspondence and papers of the Metropolitan Police, there was a telegraph sent from Inspector Witcher to Richard Main, Chief Commissioner of Police at Scotland Yard, which reads, I have this day apprehended on a warrant Constance Kent, the third daughter, who was reprimanded for a week. The magistrates have left the case entirely in my hands to get up the evidence. I am awkwardly situated and want assistance. Pray send down Sergeant Williamson or Tanner. The reason that Witcher feels that he is awkwardly situated is that his apprehension of Constance flies in the face of the investigations carried out by the local police. The main problem with the case is that there is no evidence or leads of any substance. It has been unanimously agreed that the culprit was either inside the house that night or was let in by a member of the household, but beyond that the truth seems to have vanished into thin air. The response to this by Witcher is to begin to pull together an array of information and to turn it into fact, fact which as he starts to put them together become history. As he reads through each lengthy report he scrawls out in his room in the wall pack in, in brown ink on light blue lined paper which is covered in splotches, asterisks, underlinings and furious scribbled crossings out, you can almost hear the buzzing described by Carr. If, as he describes, facts are like fish swimming about in a vast and sometimes inaccessible ocean, then what Witcher catches does indeed depend partly on chance, what part of the ocean he chooses to fish in and what tackle he chooses to use, but also, and most importantly, it is determined by the kind of fish he wants to catch. Just like the historian Carr describes, Witcher sets out to get the kind of facts he wants. His report boils down to a handful of these curious facts. Firstly, her nightdress is missing. So much of the case centres around this nightdress, it is the one fact which it comes up with which seems of true significance. Yet, for all its presence in the centre of the investigation, it is a fact defined by absence. An actual nightdress is found, but days before which it arrives on the scene. Inexplicably, this single piece of potential evidence vanishes before it ever has a chance to be properly examined, and most critically, Witcher knows nothing of it until his apprehension of the girl. When he does discover its existence in November of the same year, following an article published in the Times newspaper, he is quick to distance himself from it. He writes to Maine that the day the murder was discovered, the police found a blood-stained nightdress secreted in a boiler hole in the kitchen. That circumstance was never made known to me by the police during my stay, although I was in daily communication with Superintendent Foley and the officers who knew of this important fact. The next two facts are very curious. Witcher states as evidence upon which to convict Constance that the murder took place soon after she returned from school and she was the only person who slept alone apart from her brother. Again turning to Carr, this comes across as a rummage into the world of fact to combine the relevant with the irrelevant. It is clearly true that Constance had recently returned from school and that she did sleep alone, but this falls into the irrational logic Carr explains of the man who goes out to buy cigarettes on an icy night and is killed by a drunk driver. It is possible to call in the driver drinking too much and the road being slippery as key causes to the accident, but to suggest that the man died because he was a cigarette smoker draws on an unrelenting logic from the pages of Alice in Wonderland. The truth in what Richard states about Constance is indisputable, but his use of it descends into the topsy-turvy.
The next two facts are focused on achieving a motive and a sense of previous criminality. Firstly, Witcher cites a conversation that took place between two school friends and Constance. These girls recall an incident where Constance complained that the little children of her father's second marriage received better treatment than those of the first. He then goes on to tie that into the tale of her running away from home some years previously, becoming obsessed with the detail of how she cut off her hair and dressed as a boy, and that both hair and female clothing had been disposed of in the very same privy in which Francis had his throat slit. The undetection and freedom promised by boys' clothes are ignored, which it chooses to interpret this as evidence of an unnatural shedding of femininity itself, at the very site where it would be cast aside a second time in the most monstrous way. And this ties in nicely to Witcher's final fact, as the monstrous nature of Constance grows in Witcher's mind, so does his collection of subjective, unfounded evidence. He states that she is a very powerful young girl. How he determines this is never made clear. At 21, when she goes to prison, Constance is nearly 5 foot 2 inches tall. In the mid-19th century, age 16, it is unlikely she would have yet reached this height. Yet so powerful is Constance, that a medical adviser, whom Witcher neither names nor appears to take a statement from, claims that he would not sleep in a house where Miss Constance was without having his door secured. Only if these things were true could we really imagine such a girl lifting a healthy four-year-old boy out of his bed and using the other arm to carefully rearrange his bedding in such a way which Witcher explains could hardly be supposed a man would have done. Perhaps unsurprisingly, despite all Witcher's efforts in the summer of 1860, He's not able to get together enough concrete evidence to make a prosecution, and the case goes cold. But after five years of staying at a home for repentant women, under the influence of Reverend Wagner, Constance confesses to the murder. This is the moment where we receive what seems to be the closest we will get to first-hand accounts in the witness statements. But of course, however detailed these statements are, they are subject to a five-year gap between the incidents they describe and the incidents themselves. In 1865, the maid Sarah Rogers states that this basket was where the biggest of the linen was put and I am sure Miss Constance's nightdress was in this basket. The use of the word sure for all its definite meaning brings into play a shadow of doubt. She was sure that was the case, but to what degree do sureties built on partly recalled facts from an incident which at the time held no significance to Sarah and now has become the one incident which she must recall truthfully at all costs truly hold the power of fact? What this leaves us with is a vast swathe of letters which make up the rest of the principal file. These letters come from all over the country, some written in the summer of 1860, others written throughout the decades to come. Letters written by a public whose imagination was fuelled by this sensational crime, but yet knew none of the inhabitants, had never travelled to road, but have a certainty that they alone hold the facts. On the 9th of August, W.J. Finlayson writes, Having given great attention to the subject of the road murder, I formed a theory which seemed the only one that could solve the mystery, being the only one which supplied an intelligible motive and reconciled all the circumstances. Such intelligible motives abound. Each one is considered, several are investigated, receive newspaper coverage and then, in turn, lead to further letters. The letters themselves become knitted together, facts and fantasies, some connected to the case, some connected to the writer, creating a story which grows wilder in its distortions and anomalies. In 1865, George Hillier writes from Swan's Nest Ride on the Isle of Wight to provide his explanation, scribbling on the back of an advert for his great tome, The History of the Isle of Wight from the Earliest Period to the Present Time in three volumes quarto for subscribers only. 
Twenty years later, a Miss Campbell writes in with nine questions in total, scrawled all over the page in all directions, obsessions seeming to leap literally off the page. If she is dead, where did she die? Did she return to a sisterhood? The Home Office clerk dealing with the letter notes on the back that a great deal of odd information is asked for, for which the Secretary of State cannot possibly supply. This seems a case of idle curiosity. Say simply, Secretary of State is unable to answer her questions. The last item in the Home Office file is from 1924 and presents the fully formed creature. The need to conceal is gone. We are presented quite simply with a cut-out article from the detective magazine. Salacious detail and hand-drawn evocative images. Shall not God search this out, for he knoweth the secrets of the heart? The answer to that question, we are told, constitutes a romance of crime without a parallel. Should we make it to the end, we are met with the promise, now our appetites have been whetted, that in the next issue we shall read of the Welsh wind and eerie tale. Selected and preserved by the Home Office, this sits happily next to witches' letters, reports from the Times, witness statements and public outcry. Fact and fiction are now so fully blurred. I just wanted to tell you about an afternoon I spent a few weeks ago with a woman who's working on filming a dramatisation of Constance Emily Kent's case to be filmed later in the year. She wanted to look through the files at the National Archives to get a deeper feeling for the way the police reports and witness statements would have looked. At one point she looked up and asked me about a particularly significant letter written by Witcher. This letter was important but I'd never had sight of it. In confusion, I began to look back through all my piles of notes. I'd worked on these documents for some time and was surprised that I'd missed such a critical letter. In the end, I explained to her that I was sorry, but I didn't think that there was such a letter. And she replied, oh no, we just made it up. Fact and fiction are now fully blurred. But perhaps the more interesting question now is, was that ever not so? This event was recorded live on the 2nd of October 2010 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.